think that a lot of communities could do this kind of thing. In our case, the real linchpin was just a few people who were willing to devote significant time to it. Hello, you are listening again to the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and I'm Lisa Gonzalez. We've spoken with John St. Julian before about grassroots change. St. Julian was one of the driving forces behind the movement to bring fiber to Lafayette, Louisiana in 2005. Often people contact us because they know their community needs better connectivity, but they don't know where to start. Getting a local coalition started to educate the community can be difficult. When deep-pocketed incumbents step into the picture, educating your community gets even harder. Nevertheless, it can be done. St. Julian shares some of the strategies Lafayette used to keep up its network momentum. Here are Chris and John. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and today we're once again speaking with John St. Julian from Lafayette, Louisiana. Welcome to the show. Hi, Chris. It's good to have you back again. You're one of our uh, favorite people to talk about anytime we're thinking about grassroots solutions to uh, broadband challenges. You were uh, essential in uh, crafting the grassroots movement uh, that that led to this incredible network that you now have in Lafayette against some really incredible opposition from Bell South, now AT&T, and Cox Cable. And before you say that, that you are part of a larger group, we know that, and we know that you're very modest. So thanks for coming on. Well, you're welcome. Uh, I'll always enjoy our conversations. I really wanted to talk to you today about this kind of steps that anyone can take in a community where they recognize they need to do something better, and they're not quite sure what to do. So I'm going to be the person that's trying to figure out how to organize my neighborhood or community, and I'll put questions to you, and we can discuss the kind of steps someone can take to get a movement rolling to build a better broadband network. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. Let's play with that. Excellent. So here I am. I'm in uh, Anytown, USA. And and the first thing I know is that I'm just not happy with my broadband speeds or my reliability. And I have a sense that lots of other people are unhappy, but I don't even know where to start. Uh, give me some guidance here. Uh, that's the kind of just getting off the ground is, at least in my judgment, easily the worst and hardest part. You feel like you're all alone. <laughs> you feel like uh, the first three things you try don't work very well. And you should expect that. As a consequence, you can't figure out whether there's real demand or whether there's not. And in truth, the thing to do is to keep plugging away at it. Set up some sort of uh, arrangement to talk to people around the community. Start holding little gatherings at coffee houses. Pull together community lists of folks that you know are interested in topics that surround broadband. That's such a, a good idea in terms of just creating lists and, and not having it in your mind, but having it written down and going through yes. that and having a concrete list. Now, if you're, if you're trying to set up a meeting in a coffee house, how do you, how do you mm-hmm. go about doing that to make sure that there's going to be someone there other than you? doesn't always work out that there is anybody there but you. <laughs> well, let's be honest <laughs> but, about it then. But when you get successful at it, when it turns out to be successful, you've hit the right people. You've hit some people that you've got a connection with or the people that you have a connection with do. You've got something concrete to look at or, or organize around. It's best if there's been something, if you try and follow up something that's already happened in the community. An article in the newspaper about somebody's, you know, the successes down the road, a big price hike by the local cable provider, uh, something to tie things to so that you can get a conversation started. 
Excellent. Now, let's assume that we'll jump ahead a few months and you've established a list and, and you're, you're hitting a lot of like minds, let's assume. And, yes. and you're not sure how to break out of that and how to engage other people. So let's, uh, let's assume that you don't have anyone from the business community involved or the, the local uh, government. It's just a bunch of activists who tend to agree on, on a lot of the same things already. What do you do next? Both of those two things are what you have to do next. We were lucky enough to, in our initial organizing run, to pull in a number of small businesses that would have uh, connections to the tech world. And in our case, it was printers, you know, which has a long tradition of being crazy radicals in the United States. But it was <laughs> Thank you, houses. Tom Paine. <laughs> yes. And uh, <laughs> they, were, they saw the, the advantages of it. Some of the folks had uh, print houses scattered around local communities. And they, would, they were able to see how much better their lives would be if they didn't have to truck hard drives around the, around the parishes. And so they were early on adopters and were very enthusiastic. A couple of them were very civic-minded, uh, were involved in other civic projects, and that's always a place to look. Look for, look for the busy people, those, generally speaking, the people you can pull in. Well, the other side of the, the question I think you had posed was about drawing government people in. And uh, again, in our case, we were lucky enough that there was at least tacit support early on. Um, there had been earlier abortive efforts to try and pull together uh, a group of people who were interested in pushing forward for fiber to the home. What happened early on helped to spark the grassroots movement was there was some evidence of some support uh, from Terry Huval and the new Mayor Joy Durrell. So local leaders, not just not just sort of people in high positions, but also, um, I mean, Terry Huval, cultural um, icon as well. Yes. Both of these people in their own way represented large segments of the community. Uh, Terry Huval, utility director and um, Cajun fiddler extraordinaire, and involved in a number of sort of cultural events along the line of French Louisiana and, quite frankly, country music as well. And so there are a lot of intersections culturally there. But on the other side, you had Joy Durrell, who was the mayor, mayor president of the parish, the county organization down here. And he was essentially converted by Terry Huval and was interested. And in the initial deal, neither of them were very willing to stand forward rapidly. In other words, they weren't willing to particularly lead the charge at first, but they rapidly, rapidly got on board. Uh, but even that tacit support was essential early on to try and, and the idea that there wasn't just a bunch of crazy-eyed tech geeks. You knew that the opposition was going to come from outside the community rather than from within the, the local government. Yes. I, th I think that we thought that there was... That that was a battle that could be won, rather than there'd be no opposition. That it was pretty apparent the pattern, the path that we could take to bring people aboard who were not inclined natively, right? right. <laughs> who would who would take the who would might natively take the position, and there are a ton of them down in our corner of the South. That you know this was all socialism. Obviously, there was 
we were adequately served by Cox and AT&T. You know, you might not like them. They might not be very reliable. They might not be giving us what they're giving people down the road. But, you know, hey, it's capitalism. John, We're just not worth that much. They've invested right? millions of dollars. And so it doesn't matter what you think. The fact is they've invested millions of dollars and therefore should face no competition whatsoever. Yeah, at least, at least not from anybody who might actually challenge them. Right. So let's, let's, let's get into some of that opposition. One mm-hmm. of the things that I really admire about Lafayette is the way you responded to the attacks. So, so you're organizing, and, and you were a student of what happened in the Tri-Cities. And I guess just yes. briefly we can also say that, that um, one of the steps along the way is to really study what other communities have gone through. And, uh, you know, I've, I learned from watching you. Uh, I'd recommend people can, they can still go back and, and read those old posts on Lafayette. Uh, it's lafayetteprofiber.com. Right. So excellent site. Um, and then uh, mymuninetworks.org has a lot of these resources. Yes. And so people need to need to study that. But but what is a yeah. lesson to take away when you start being hit with uh, direct mail and maybe uh, advertisements that are saying the city's about to make a huge mistake? Because we had studied the Tri Cities, and I would recommend uh, anyone take a look at that. That was a, sort of a archetypal case <laughs> of how they could shut down a really strong uh, local community effort that didn't have the kind of governmental support or business community support that we had, we managed to get together in Lafayette. This is the Tri-Cities of Illinois, and this was a fight from back in the early 2000s. Um, yes. So people can, can go back. There's still some web pages available. Look. That's right. Yes. So what do you do? Uh, you know, it was very easy to see what they'd done there. It was very easy to see that what they had done, in truth, was simply overwhelm the news channels during the final weeks of the campaign. Direct mail... They bought time on all the channels. They blanketed the area, which was expensive in that community. And, um, and it would be a lot less expensive than ours. <laughs> you know? uh, we're not attached to a larger metro area. The thing that we, I think, came to an early conclusion that I pushed real hard during early meetings of the working committee was that we had to get out ahead of this. Uh, everything that they said had to be responded to immediately. And generally speaking, we managed that and the both Huval and Durrell were keys in putting the face of the community forward there. But also, uh, I think that what we needed to do, and it was proved out in the end, was we had a strategy of pointing out that nearly everything these guys said was a lie. Not just that this was wrong, this particular incident that we were responding to, but saying this is wrong like all the other things they said are wrong, were wrong. <laughs> you know. These guys lie. You can't trust the thing they say. They're not mistaken. They're lying to you. They're lying to you. They're, there's no point in being polite about it because they're not going to be. <laughs> right? And so the, the consequence was that so we very early on tried to establish the meme, if you will, that you, don't, you shouldn't listen to these guys. These guys don't have your interest in stake. They're telling you tales. They, they look down on you. We played up really big. They would make you know, sophomoric mistakes about using uh, Texas cars and bad Cajun accents to try and run local ads of the local cable television thing. And you would see that it was obviously filmed in, you know, Nederland, Texas or somewhere. And these guys were trying to act like Cajuns, and it was embarrassing. And they would do stupid things like run the push pole that in Louisiana, you can tape your side of the conversation. A lot of our guys did that 
and we just replaced we sliced it up into small pieces and sent it around viral email, which was about the degree of virality you could get back in that those days. And we did a bunch of stuff like that that was more aimed at painting our opponents directly than countering specific technical claims that they might make. We call it the inoculation strategy. And the idea there was lay down very clearly. We took every opportunity when they would make mistakes that any large corporation is going to make <laughs> about relating to local communities to highlight how out of touch they were with the local community. And so, you know, we would point this out. Everybody would get a great hoot out of it. We went ahead and countered every claim, technical kind of claim they would make, but we made a special effort to depict the, depict the opposition as out-of-towners who you couldn't trust what they were saying to you. <laughs> they were always lying. So do you think that the response that Lafayette had to these sorts of tactics was unique to Cajun country, or is that something that we can apply to other communities as well? Um, I don't think it's particular to Cajun country. I do think that we have a, a sort of an easier time running the cultural side of it because it is such a unique place and because there is such a long and deep um, otherness sort of about being a Cajun. People are conscious of that and they're willing to uh, walk away from solutions that others might not, just because we're different down here is a thing. But every community I've ever lived in has um, its own version of that that can be awoke. <laughs> uh, we all feel like this is our place and that other people come at our sufferance and that if they want to make money off of us, they should listen to us. <laughs> and I don't think that's anything unique to Cajun country. They certainly seem to have sort of a Keystone Cops approach to trying to stop y'all from building that network. <laughs> yes. And uh, I think, quite frankly, we benefited from that, too. Uh, they early on decided they were going to try and de- – yeah, part of the demonization thing ran the other way. They early on decided that our little group was a good group to target and try and make fun of. And uh, it didn't work out for them. They quickly quit that. But they gave us an initial boost simply by taking us seriously. And that was, uh, you know, you can count on those mistakes. You can count on them. They will happen inevitably. So these guys are not nearly as clever as you might think. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's always quite amazing how the same old tactics seem to pop up time and time again. But... Uh, one of the ways that you dealt with this, I found, was that you came back and regularly wrote. You wrote almost every day about this issue. And I'm wondering how important that was to the overall effort. I think it was huge. People people did check in. People did want to know what the news was, uh, and they could most reliably get it there. I made a big point of repeating every single article that appeared anywhere in any media in Lafayette and linking to it with a brief commentary, in addition to, say, my own sort of analytical pieces of those that Mike might do. And I think that was a big deal, not only because I gave people a, ready, a, brand, a way to stay engaged, but also because it sits out there on the web and it insists. It's out there. You search for it. It's still there. You can go back and check a fact. Uh, if you're a reporter, and a lot of what at least I did at that time was – uh, sort of designed to be picked up by reporters or to provide a narrative frame the reporter could use 
that would be useful to them. <laughs> so what does that mean exactly when you're talking about a narrative frame? What, what did you do specifically? Part of my background is that my wife was deeply involved in a small weekly newspaper for much of the first decade or 15 years that we were together. And so I hung around with newspaper people a lot. And it became apparent to me pretty quick <laughs> that, that they were struggling to meet their deadlines. Uh, they are handed a narrative by these PR guys. It comes in a little sheet, right? You know, and it's got everything laid out. And it's got an entry paragraph and an exit paragraph. And, and it's easy to use to write stories from these PR things. Everyone I've ever talked to is deeply cynical about this. But they simply don't have the time to uh, do deep research on every story they write. And so they end up dependent upon this. And they want some other alternative narrative to at least compare it to. And so one of the things that we did was provide a coherent alternative narrative about what was going on in Lafayette, what was going on with telecom nationally, that would allow them to see different patterns when the news came out. And how exactly did you get these materials in front of reporters and the, the media? What kind of strategies did you use? Mostly through the blog. We sent out press releases. We did all the normal things. We did press releases, too. I tried to set up the blog as a, a place where that could be done very easily. They could check in there, and they would read through the story, our version of the story. And I would do very direct. When I thought that the local news media were being too easily taken in, I would lay into them. And they read that. <laughs> they pay attention to that, especially when it's done in their language. I knew what the what newspaper people thought they cared about. So, John, when you were fighting these campaigns and whatnot, that was a little while ago. That was back in 2004, 2005, and, and a little bit further on. Has Have things changed since then? Would you recommend different strategies? Well, I think that, that some of the conditions have changed. Uh, I think that social media is, is huge these days. And a lot of what we did on the blog can be done through social media to alert people, to keep people's attention on the, on the right things. Uh, you know, at the time, all we had was really email and blogs. So I would say stay, stay constant, stay in the flow of things, and uh, don't neglect basic political organizing, meetings, walking, leafleting towns, having town hall meetings. But uh, also stay with it and don't neglect, I think some people might neglect these days, to have a, a solid website with information on it. Because we didn't only blog. We had an informational side that sat out there and made the argument real coherently and just sat there. It was easy to find on Google. You know, and anytime anybody wanted to look up the argument, they could. So I'd say, you know, keep all of your fronts moving. So you think there's still hope that, that other communities can, can do this sort of thing? Yes, I think that there's still a ton of potential out there. I think that a lot of communities could do this kind of thing. In our case, the real linchpin was just a few people, less than a dozen, who were willing to devote significant time to it. And then we gathered people around. And anybody who did a good piece of work got to help control the movement. And that was just the way it, you know, we had weekly meetings when it got hot. And it can be done. It really can be done. It can be done a lot more easily than you think. You just have to stick with it for longer than you think you're going to have to. 
Well, thanks for coming on the show, John. We always appreciate it, and I think we're going to try and find an excuse to bring you back before too long. Well, I would enjoy that. Bye-bye. Be sure to take a few minutes to check out the blog at LafayetteProFiber.com. Even though Lafayette has been racing along with its awesome fiber network for several years, St. Julian still offers relevant stories on the network and on telecommunications. We were ideas for the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Let us know about topics that interest you or guests you feel we should interview, and we'll do our best to get them on here. Write to podcast at muninetworks.org. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at communitynets. This show was released on April 15, 2014. Thank you to the group Valley Lodge for their song, Sweet Elizabeth, licensed using Creative Commons. And thanks for listening.